Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate, and for only a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. When you are a member, you will get ad-free podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site. You never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. And you also get exclusive episodes and segments from shows like the Slate Culture Gab Fest, my own weekly show, The Waves, and Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel Lavery. For the past quarter century, Slate has been covering all the major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our culture shows have debated things like sexism in popular culture. They've named the best summer songs. They've explained the latest TikTok trends. If all this has made us a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash spoiler plus to keep us going for another 25 years. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No, I am the father What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this week we are talking about Dune, the new, big, extra-large, extra-successful Denis Villeneuve adaptation of the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. Joining me to talk about Dune is Sam Adams, Slate senior editor. Hey, Sam. Hello, Dana. Uh, we have we have some work cut out for us here because there's a lot of plot crammed into the three hours of this movie. It's a big, some might say ponderously long movie, but it still couldn't possibly contain everything that the novel Dune contains. I think that the novel, depending on how it's bound, is somewhere between 400 and 800 pages long, right? And it's also just the beginning of a saga. There were five more novels afterward. It's one of the most successful science fiction novels of all time. So there's a lot of reasons that this movie is going <laughs> to maybe take some looking at from different angles. I think the one that we should maybe start with is the box office angle because this movie was a surprising hit. I mean, I don't know that it's a surprise. It was more like a coin toss whether this extremely big, extremely expensive movie was going to do well in our pandemic times, right? Uh, on HBO Max and on the big screen at the same time. Uh, and it was a smash hit this weekend. It b- broke a bunch of records, right? Right. Uh, I mean, this is a movie that was delayed for a full year um, because of the pandemic, obviously. And the conventional wisdom has always been that uh, day and date release, which is where the movie goes in theaters and onto streaming at the same time, um, would cannibalize theatrical box office. And maybe in some alternate universe, this you know did even better at the box office. But this is still the biggest uh, domestic opening of Denis Villeneuve's career, including his Blade Runner sequel. Um, so it, it's doing really well and people are willing to go back to theaters in significant numbers, it turns out. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually, this to me seemed like, this movie seemed like a recipe to be a bomb, and that's completely separate from the conversation we'll get into about the quality of the movie. Do you think that this model of day and date releases that you were talking about is, is something that's going to last beyond the pandemic? I mean, do you think that Dune might might prove to, um, to film studios that that's something worthwhile to do? I, you know, I, th- I think it's definitely going to last. I mean, we've already seen the theatrical window, um, which is the number of days 
that a movie is exclusively in theaters. The industry standard used to be at least three months, often six or longer. It is now basically been standardized to 45 across the board. Most of the major studios have struck uh, that deal with uh, the AMC chain, and I think it's going to kind of proliferate across the board. So 45 days is basically, I think, just going to be the future. Um, if if and when we're ever officially out of the pandemic, I think that will remain. Um, I don't think, you know, $165 million sci-fi blockbusters are going to continue to necessarily premiere day and date because as much money as HBO is making off, uh, or Warner Brothers is making off HBO Max subscriptions, I don't think it can measure up to, you know, what they might have made at the box office with this, but it certainly proves that it's not a death sentence for movies. And I think, I mean, this is the kind of movie that like, if you're going to go see a movie in theaters, this is the one, you know, this has, you know, the big IMAX image and Dolby digital Atmos sound, the kind of things that are, are pretty difficult to replicate at home. And I think people still do feel like that, um, at least is something that they need to experience in theaters, whether they feel that way um, about say the new Wes Anderson movie, which also set a record, but only for like indie theaters during the pandemic is sort of a, a different question. Did you see it in IMAX yourself? Because I did, and I have to admit that that part of it, the, the use of the size of the screen and the volume was pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah, I actually, I ended up seeing it uh, twice. Uh, I saw the North American premiere in IMAX at the Toronto Film Festival, um, and then I watched it again in sort of, you know, regular theatrical shape um, a few weeks later. I tend to prefer the sort of the theatrical widescreen of it just because I like the composition of it, and I find... The IMAX, which when it is sort of at its full grandeur, which is not the whole movie, um, when it is is almost square, just sort of this big towering thing that it's impossible to kind of get your eyes around. And it's supposed to be more immersive, but I just I kind of find myself I want to sort of I I prefer to have that sort of, the sort of frame around it and know things are when it. So it definitely has that like big overwhelming feeling to it. With this, I still think it's something that people should see big, but I sort of prefer the um, I guess the vanilla theatrical version. Ah, interesting. Maybe I'll see it in that in that just for the aspect ratio change and see how that changes the experience. Although, uh, and here's where we get to the question of whether it was a good movie or not. I, I In a way, I, I crave the sensation of being in Dune again, but I don't crave the duration, nor does the story hold me in any way. Did you like this movie? I mean, did it live up to your expectations? I mean, I had pretty low expectations for it in some way. I, I mean, I expected it to be sort of, you know, big and pretty and you know well appointed and and i think really super well cast like every actor in this is is somebody i love in one way or another um you know it's something that i was like kind of awed by i liked looking at it i'm glad that it exists i have to say like i was completely sort of unmoved by it in any conventional sense like i wasn't really wrapped up in the story or really concerned what was going to happen to paul atreides or the Fremen or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, I liked looking at it that, the, you know, it is a big, long movie, as you said, I, but I did find it actually kind of went faster. Like the second time through, it has at least a sort of like even pace. that sort of feels like appropriate to this grandiose subject matter. That's sort of a qualified. Yes, I guess it is. It is what it is. I'll leave interpretation to the listener. Yeah, it's a curious movie in that way. I mean, that you can have a generally positive response to its craft and the sort of 
um, tone that, as you say, it sustains admirably, except for Jason Momoa's performance, I'm sure we'll talk about, doesn't really give anyone the chance to have much fun. Yeah, no, I mean, Jason Momoa is, I mean, he kind of comes in and does his Jason Momoa thing that he does in like everything now, but he is definitely like, he brings that kind of like Han Solo swagger to this and the sort of awareness that he's in like a cool sci-fi movie and can act accordingly. Um, And everyone else is acting, you know, as the story suggests, like the fate of the universe hangs in the balance. Um, But he seems to be clearly having the most fun with it. Um, And so even though he's on screen for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes in the whole movie, those are some of the highlights for me. Oh, for sure. And that's the only relationship. His relationship with with Paul, Timothee's character, is really the only one that to me had any kind of resonance that I could picture hap- you know that I could picture any any history or future to their friendship as opposed to just what was being shown me at that moment. Yeah, and we should mention uh, by the way that Jason Momoa's character is named Duncan Idaho. <laughs> so s- speaking of names, maybe we should wade through some of these names and and try to set up a little bit what's going on in Dune. And it's worth pointing out as well that this is only the first half of the story of the first book. Dune. So, you know, even though we've got a lot of names to wade through here, there's there's more to come in the saga. Yeah, I mean, the, the to be sort of pedantic about it, I mean, the title of the movie actually is up on the screen as Dune Part 1. Um, and they have made it without any guarantee of a sequel. It hasn't even been greenlit. Denis Villeneuve hasn't written the script yet. Um, yeah, that's really a power move on Villeneuve's part that he, he titled it Dune Part One <laughs> like that. But it seems like it's probably going to pay off for him. OK, but Sam, if you will, will help me out with the um, with the exposition, I'm going to try to set up the world that we find ourselves in as we join Dune. So it's the year, I believe, 1091, <laughs> right? So thousands and thousands of years in the future. We are in a universe that at least in this film, it's never really explained exactly what the political order of this universe is, but it seems to be this kind of fiefdom, like a cosmic fiefdom where there is one emperor in charge of all these different planets, and it's a somewhat militaristic setup where, you know, if you have power, you are given control of various planets throughout the universe. In other words, there's some sort of universal political order that we never quite learn the um, the background of, right? Like, how did we get to this point? But as we begin, this emperor who's called the Padisha, and there's a lot of um, of language borrowings in the names in this movie, right? There's a lot of Middle Eastern or, or possibly Hebrew words floating around. The Padisha sends Duke Leto of the House of Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac, to the planet Arrakis to become the new ruler is not the right word. He's sort of the military manager, right? He's running the colonial force that's occupying this planet Arrakis. And Arrakis is a very special planet. Do you want to take it away a bit and explain why? Sure. Arrakis is um, the desert planet. Um, It is entirely sand, um, along with some people and a few very large worms. Uh, But more importantly, it is the size of this material uh, called spice, which is sort of a mineral that's scattered throughout the sand. And the spice is what allows interstellar space travel to happen in this universe. This is all kind of backstory in the novel. It's not really in the film, but this is, you know, the film is set, I think, something like 20,000 years in the future from where we are now. And it's after there's basically like a huge war involving computers and artificial intelligence. And then that all got wiped out. And now they've developed this technology that, you know, allows them to travel between stars, but doesn't involve computers and stuff, which which dictates the look of the movie as well. It's sort of a quasi uh, psychic approach to it. So the way that you travel between stars is there are these 
uh, kind of navigator characters who you know somehow use their minds to help ships navigate through space and they need the spice which is basically some sort of psychoactive drug to allow them to do that so it's sort of like interstellar oil but also a little bit like magic mushrooms Right. Yeah. It's, it's this great combination. Like it's a floor wax. It's a dessert topping. Right. It's a drug that makes you psychic. And it is also the way you power your spaceships. And that actually touches on something I wanted to mention about the design of this movie that I think is one of its its most stunning features, which is that the the way that spaceships look that are powered by spice and psychic power is so organic. I really do love the, the, the spaceship and technology design and the way that it's never explained how how this technology evolved in this universe. So the spaceships are kind of these big ovoid, almost like rocks, right? Or, or there's the craft that they use that looks like a dragonfly with these hovering wings. I don't know how many of these design choices are specific to, to this version. It seems like Villeneuve was trying to imagine the technology of this future universe in a different way than we're used to seeing in sci-fi epics. Yeah, I, I do think... It's a really thoughtful on that level. Um, Denis Villeneuve is back with his regular um, production designer, Patrice Vermette, um, who didn't work on the Blade Runner movie. And, the, you know, the look of the Blade Runners is very much kind of an extrapolation of where Earth is now. Um, this is very much kind of an, down an alternate stream, um, a little more, I guess, like the alien ships in Arrival, um, if you wanted to compare it to something. So, yeah, so it does have a more kind of roundish, uh, organic quality to it um there are certain things that you know you can't really get away from um but even you know the way that the ships fly through space there are these big um sort of round gray tubes that just kind of hang in space that the ships come through and you assume there's some sort of particle accelerator type thing that helps the ships kind of slingshot through but even that is just there's a lot in this movie as much as is packed into it there's a lot that is left for you to infer and kind of, you know, either, you know, read the novel and catch up on the lore that way or just kind of make your own intuitive decisions about what these things are for. And I, that, is, that is something I like about it. It is not something that has like lots of big speeches explaining how these various things work. No, nor does the movie feel the need to stop and really define who the characters are or what their relationship is to each other. I mean, to me, that the, the, the beauty of this movie and that its downfall kind of exists side by side, right? I mean, it does have this confidence in its own choices, and that gives it this, this sort of grandeur and a, and a kind of a, a self-sufficiency, right? Um, but at the same time, I feel like on a story level, it really shuts the viewer out and it makes you make a lot of assumptions. I mean, it's almost like you would need to come in armed with the novel and with, you know, all kinds of, of Dune lore in your mind in order to fully flesh out these characters because it's there's not a lot of dialogue to do it for you, right? I mean, there's a lot of fantastic sound design when we see these spaceships landing. There's this kind of ambient roar at all times. But to me, that often drowned out the dialogue and sort of drowned out my ability to um, to even pay attention. It's a, sort of a numbing effect. Right. I mean, I you know, this movie notoriously, um, the, the previous attempt to turn it into a film was in 1984 that David Lynch directed. And, you know, for that release, they sort of notoriously handed out little leaflets at the door with like a glossary of terms to explain to people like what the hell was going on in this movie. So it's I, there's just a ton to fit in. And they've, they've chosen, in this case, to not give you the little cheat sheet to watch along with um, but also not sort of include that in the script and just go more with the with the sensation of it which is actually I mean if there's one thing I do not like about some of Villeneuve's other movies and I am a very much a kind of blow hot and cold on him I think it is that he can be a very 
cerebral kind of bloodless uh, filmmaker. And I, I think this is, uh, you know, this is not sort of a movie with like the pulsing blood of life rushing through its veins at every moment, but it also doesn't, it doesn't feel the need to sort of stop and demonstrate to you how smart it is at every moment. Um, and that is something I was afraid that it was going to do given his history and uh, those fears, I guess, fortunately proved to be unfounded. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it, and that's sort of what I mean by it being confident in its own choices. So as we talk about it, I, I enjoy it more than I actually enjoyed it while I was watching it. Okay, but mm -hmm. we need to provide the cheat sheet since they're not handing yes. it out at the door. And we actually need to summarize the plot of this movie, which I've been putting off because I'm sure I'm going to get something wrong and I'll hear from a dune head about it. But our main <laughs> character, who we've already mentioned, Paul Atreides, the son of the scion, right? The, the young only son, apparently only child of this family that's been assigned to Arrakis played by Timothée Chalamet. As we first meet him, I believe the first scene we, we have any extended encounter with him anyway, he is sitting at breakfast with his mother, played by Rebecca Ferguson, is teaching him in the ways of the Bene Gesserit, which is, you want to explain what that is? That's our first, um, that's our first piece of, of lingo to, to have to explain. I mean, it's sort of analogous, one might say, to the Force in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, the Bene Gesserit are sort of this interstellar order of nuns. Um, they're hopefully, because this seems like actually the richest and most interesting part of the Dune lore, they're hopefully going to be the subject of an HBO Max miniseries uh, written by John Spates, who's one of the, the co-authors of this screenplay. Um, but they are basically a sort of immensely powerful order of, not to put too fine a point on it, space nuns. Um, who have, you know, existed for thousands of years. They have these kind of almost quasi-magical powers that among among them is this thing that Jessica is teaching Paul in this first scene called the voice, where if you speak in a certain um, kind of low growly way, you can basically force people to do whatever you want them to do. They also maybe have powers of sight or maybe just can, are able to quote-unquote predict things by, you know, forcing people to go along with what, what they've predicted. But they have spent something like thousands of years basically running this big eugenics program, kind of crossing bloodlines um, to produce this figure, this messiah figure who they call the Kvisach Haderach. They're not supposed to be quite there yet. They're kind of nearing the end of the line, but they're not supposed to be there. But Jessica, um, so she was supposed to have a daughter, and I think that her daughter is supposed to give birth to the Kvisach Haderach or whatever, but she, her husband wanted a son, and one of the things the Bene Gesserit can do is apparently control the gender of their children. So she she bore him a son, kind of messing up this whole plan right at the 10-yard line. Um, but now they're sort of stuck with him and at least want to want to want to play out the string and see like if maybe he could be sort of like i don't know such hotter light or something uh, so he may be maybe the messiah he may be kind of a, a fraud in the place of the messiah or you know sort of i don't know premature messiah or something but he is he is at, at least you know he's having these prophetic dreams which suggest that he is you know, somehow in tune with this power, um, this destiny that he doesn't understand and can't control. Um, and it has something to do with this planet of Arrakis, something to do with the spice and something also to do with the, the native population of Arrakis who are called the Fremen, who are these basically sort of underground desert tribes who haven't really been seen that much of before, but it turns out the previous estimates were something like they're you know, 50,000 of them, but it turns out they're probably several million and they're just, they know the territory too well to be sort of spotted by people. But um, one of one of Duke Leto's plans, Oscar Isaac's plans, um, is to rather than the previous sort of 
owners of the planet, uh, their method was just to suppress the Fremen and take whatever they wanted from the Sands. And Leto's idea is to form an alliance with them. Um, and that's what thrusts the plot into motion, I guess. Oh, that was very well summarized. I think that all that is left uh, story-wise is to set up the other house, the other sort of great family that is competing for control of the planet and which previously had control of the planet Arrakis, which is the Harkonnens. And the patriarch of this family and essentially the, the bad guy of this movie, or at least the one who's managing all the bad guys, is the Baron Harkonnen, played by a completely unrecognizable Stellan Skarsgård. It took me probably an hour and a half into the movie to recognize his voice and his face behind this bizarre sort of, what is he wearing? He's in a fat suit, I guess, but he also seems to be completely covered in oil. He is just, I mean, as was the um, the, the Baron figure in David Lynch's Dune, this, uh, this very repulsive, you know, obviously villainous figure who also seems to have magical powers because when he gets really angry, he levitates above his interlocutors. Yeah, he's sort of a little bit like an oily human slug um, in this movie. The Harkonnens all seem to be very pale and bald and just generally grub-like. Um, and he is literally the, the biggest of them and the most powerful and seems to either through technology or, or magic or some combination of the two. Um, he could just float around, presumably because he's too fat to walk or, or you know, so powerful that he doesn't need to or, or something that ability has just atrophied to him. But, yeah, he sort of can, you know, lift up into the air, does that at one crucial point in the story, which I, maybe we'll get to in a minute. But yes, you take one look at him and you know that this is the bad guy. Well, he's a Jabba the Hutt-like figure, too. I mean, I keep making these Star Wars comparisons, and I'm sure that this movie was at great pains to try to distinguish itself visually from Star Wars. But, you know, there's a lot of similar things, right? We've got the chosen one kid who's being taught a magic art. And, and then we also have this repulsive, gigantic villain. I just, I recognize a lot of these things. One thing I kind of missed in this world, and I'm sure that this is all deliberate too, is that everyone is humanoid, right? I mean, there isn't really any vision of any alien looking creature, pretty much. Everybody's got powers, but they're still a roughly humanoid shape, which especially after yeah. Arrival, which had such great creature design and such an unusual way of imagining aliens was a little bit disappointing. Other than the sandworms, of course. But yeah, but all the all the sort of, you know, bipedal life forms in this are, are basically... Uh basically human yeah let's talk about the sandworms real quick because that is something i mean even if you are not a huge dune head when you go to see a, any version of dune you're going to be looking forward to the sandworms and this movie really really teases you before you get to see them right these gigantic life forms that live inside the spice sand and are trying to guard it from from people who want to mine it um what did you think of the the slow reveal of the sandworms and then and then what did you think of them once they finally um you know appeared above the sand I mean, that's one of the places where this is very clearly like a part one of two, and it is either um, very nervy or very arrogant of Denis Villeneuve to be setting up things that clearly feel like they need to pay off in a different movie. Like you show these giant sandworms running around the desert. You show um, these little kind of, I don't know, almost sort of almost like ice axe things that people can use to, you know, hitch onto the outside of the worm and use it for travel. Clearly, it feels like these things have been introduced. This is like, you know, Chekhov's worm ice axe <laughs> needs, needs to be used in the third act. And then you get like one shot of some rando riding the, the worm at the end, whereas clearly, like, clearly Paul Atreides has to do this at some point. Like, that's just the laws of movies indicate that has to happen at some point. But it's, that's off in the part two that hasn't been written yet. But I mean, they are, um, they do sort of satisfyingly create this real feeling of these things just being enormous they are you know basically sand colored they have these huge uh maws which are sort of like 
I don't know, like I guess a cross between like a whale's mouth and a sphincter, like that. Um, But they, you know, at one point, one of them swallows this enormous spice harvesting, uh, kind of like a thrasher, but for spice, just swallows this thing whole and it barely even like, it's just this little dot going down its throat. So it does, I mean, the movie does successfully, you know, maybe especially in theaters where you also have the sound, you know, this big whomping sound working along with it. I think it does really give you that sense of scale and also of, you know, in a more abstract level, just this huge thing operating on this planet that Paul and none of the other Atreides or Harkonnens or anybody else from the Empire has any idea of understanding what's going on there. Sam, I'm going to stop you for just a moment for a word from our sponsor this week. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, back to Dune. So let's. it takes a while for the action to get going in this movie. As, as we were saying, it has a very stately pace. Um, but when it does, there's actually quite a bit of action in the middle. Do you want to get into the, um, the traitor within the house of Atreides who sets off all the trouble? Do I? Uh, sure. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, so, yeah, so we have this setup here where the Atreides family has taken over, or Atreides house, I should say, Game of Thrones style. House Atreides has taken over uh, the planet of Arrakis. They've been sort of assigned it by the uh, galactic emperor who does not show his face in this particular movie. But the Harkonnens who have been harvesting spice on Arrakis for decades are unsurprisingly not very happy about having their big cash cow taken away from them. And in fact, it's it's none too subtly hinted in this movie that the emperor is actually not giving Arrakis to House Atreides as a gift, but in fact, it's sort of a poison pill. He feels like they're becoming too big and too powerful. So he's given this thing, which is naturally going to put them at war with another house. And in fact, it does. Um, the Harkonnens make a plan to take back the planet. They actually go and get um, several legions of the emperor's troops to help them with that. Um, house Atreides is betrayed from the inside by the house uh, doctor, whose wife has been captured by the Harkonnens and tortured, um, and stupidly believes that they're going to be true to their word and let her go if all he does is betray them. But yeah, he takes down the shield, jams their comms, Harkonnens come in and blow stuff up. Uh, Paul and his mother escape along with some of the troops. Duke Leto is captured by the Baron. The, the doctor who betrayed them feels badly enough about that to outfit him with a basically sort of like a poison gas tooth in the back of his mouth that he can crush and expel the gas and it will kill everybody in the room, including himself. Um, so he does that eventually, but the Baron, because he can float up in the air, somehow manages to escape. So he kills everybody, all the sort of main ruling powers of the Harkonnens, except for the Baron himself. And meanwhile, uh, Paul and Jessica escape into the desert and eventually uh, hook up with the Fremen, who we have seen in the visions, in Paul's visions before that. To judge from the marketing of this movie, you would think that Zendaya is kind of the second lead right after Timothée. Um, but in fact, apart from these visions that he's having of an eventual meeting with her, she doesn't show up until, I don't know, maybe the last 20 minutes of the movie or something like that, and has, has very little to do. So that's another place where 
you feel like for her sake, if no one else's, they really need to make part two. Yeah, it really, it really, you really would think that it's a romance, a desert romance between Timote and Zendaya. But when you actually see them together, it's not. I don't think that they ex- exist on the screen in real space as opposed to one of his visions of the future until the last few moments of this this entire movie. So yeah, the second half of the movie, after all of the palace intrigue that you described involving, you know, Oscar Isaac's character sacrificing himself and the betrayal within the house, uh, really takes place on the planet Arrakis. And the question becomes, how are Paul and Jessica going to find a way to work with the Fremen, the, um, the native inhabitants of the planet Arrakis? So the Fremen finally emerge from the status of being, you know, people that are seen only in dream images and start to become real characters. And one of the first uh, representatives of the, of the Fremen we meet, who I think is one of the most underused actors in this movie, is Javier Bardem, who appears as what we gather is some sort of um, charismatic tribal leader among the Fremen, who meets briefly with Paul and Jessica. Um, do you have anything to say about about his uh, his brief cameo? I I mean, just that it's very brief. I mean, I you know I like that this movie casts actors with so much presence in these very small roles. Um, Stephen McKinley Henderson is another one who plays the sort of intergalactic navigator to Fear Hawat. I mean, and it's you it's worth having him in this movie just for. There's a scene of him going out in the desert with a little parasol to shield his fair uh, skin, and uh, you know. Fair enough. That's that's plenty for me. But it does leave you feel like a lot of these people um, are not being used, certainly to the extent of their abilities. And Javier Bardem is is someone that I feel like if you plant him in the first scene, you have to, you know, in the first half of the movie, you need to bring him back later. And he does come back for the ending scenes, but it doesn't feel like the only thing he has to do is just sort of look authoritative and weighty. But there's really nothing to his character beyond that. The speed with which Javier Bardem's character is brought on and off screen kind of brings me to a bigger question about this movie that I want to ask you if you experienced this as well. But I mean, I don't really have a protagonist or a character to, to cling to in this movie. As you, as you said, it's very well cast. I wouldn't have cast any of these roles any differently. And yet I just had no emotional engagement with any of these characters, even the ones that had a lot of screen time. And I'm wondering if you if you also felt this kind of um, disconnect from from the movie. I, I felt admiration and even awe as I was watching this sometimes, particularly given the IMAX screen. But I almost never felt emotional engagement with any any part of any story. Right. I mean, I think the the best possible spin on that, and I, I have colleagues who I think endorse this maybe more than I do, but I, I think it's not wrong. Um, is that this is sort of a a white savior story that is designed to undermine white savior narrative. So he is set up to lead um, the Fremen who are sort of, uh, you know, ethnically mixed in this version. They're more clearly kind of coded as, you know, Bedouin Arabs in the novel. I mean, this, you have Javier Bardem and Zendaya and, um, you know, several other, uh, several other people. So it's that identity is kind of not as clear, but they're clearly people of color. And here's clearly a white man who is, um, in a position to lead them and help them take back quote unquote their freedom. Um, but then it also, the story goes on to very much kind of undermine whether or not that's a good thing and whether or not he is actually just going to be starting this like enormous intergalactic uh, war rather than actually bringing peace. So I think the, the kind of remoteness of Timothy Chalamet's character and the fact that you feel him being pushed towards this destiny, which he is very, maybe very wisely resisting, is part of what's going on in the story. But as you say, I mean, it kind of leaves you, especially because I I feel like we're going to sort of attach to Zendaya in in part two, if we ever get there, like she's going to be more of the 
you know, protagonist that the audience is meant to identify with. But until we get there, we're left with this character who is very much kind of holding us at a remove. And it does make it hard to kind of feel the story, I guess. But you wouldn't put that down to any of the performances because I know there's also I've seen on social media a strain of thinking that Timothée Chalamet is just miscast in this role and is sort of not up to the challenge and feels like somebody who's been transplanted from, you know, the Lady Bird universe onto the planet Arrakis. I didn't feel that myself. I mean, he's not an action hero. And that's, I think, what is interesting and different about him. I'm really glad that he didn't, you know, bulk up for this role and turn into some sort of hero. And there's also I think this is maybe more important in the novel but I think maybe it'll emerge in part two I feel like there's also some gender play going on with his character in the sense that he is being inducted into this you know Bene Gesserit group that is entirely female right that's a sort of a secretly matriarchal force in this society that otherwise looks pretty patriarchal and that he's you know a little bit on the cusp there basically his mom is teaching him in the arts of you know these psychic space nuns which puts him in a little bit of a different place than you know for example Luke in Star Wars. Right. I mean, he has we see him early on um, training with a, a, a fairly bulked up Josh Brolin, who is kind of the the sort of the master at arms for House Atreides. Um, and they are they have a you know pretty good sort of hand to hand knife fight. One of the um, nice things about the way this movie, this universe is conceived of um, technology is there aren't a lot of sort of like pew pew laser guns in it. A lot of the fighting is basically hand-to-hand with large knives and stabbing weapons, and that is just always, like, more satisfying and visceral to watch on screen. So Paul has that kind of combat training, but then he is also doing this sort of, you know, psychic combat, the stuff that he's learning from his mom, learning to use the voice, having his visions, which makes him sort of also kind of a a dreamer in a way that, I mean, is that that word probably applies to, like, 98% of Timothée characters up to this point. Um, So I think it's his casting really brings out that character rather than um, the guy who's supposed to be great with knives and eventually take over for Oscar Isaac. He he looks like somebody who was kind of an ill fit for the leader of the house. And I, I think that's, you know, he feels that way too. So that sort of, that makes sense to me. It also seems to be true and no doubt would become more so if there's a part two that it's, it's women that are pulling the strings behind the scenes, both psychically and physically, right? I mean, this character, the, um, the ecologist on the planet Arrakis who welcomes them played by Sharon Duncan Brewster uh, is, seems to be essentially smarter than anyone else in the movie, right? She's the one who's able to sort of negotiate with the Fremen. She's the one who understands the the nature and the culture of this planet. And, you know, really they would probably have been eaten by sandworms moments after landing on the planet, if not for this doctor's know-how. So I don't know if that will become more important in the second half, but those are the places that I saw the movie playing a little bit with the um, skinny white boy will save us all <laughs> sort of myth at its center. And it's worth noting as well that that character, the the doctor who introduces them to the planet, has been gender swapped from the novel. So the movie is also trying to do some some work in that department to make this not so much a universe run and understood only by men. All right. So in the second half of the movie where we're with Paul and Jessica in the desert, right, just essentially just trying to, to survive, uh, we finally do reach the point of an action climax, which I have to confess, I did not understand at all. <laughs> Everything having to do with the last, I don't know, 15 minutes or so of this movie seemed um, seemed inserted at the end simply to exposit a bunch of stuff for the second half. Can you help me understand who Paul is battling in the knife fight toward the end, what the stakes of that battle are, and what the hell is going on? Well, yeah, so at the, at the very end is one of the parts where, you know, we've been talking about how this movie generally lays off the exposition and 
tries not to explain stuff to you too much. And the ending feels like a part where they actually do need to explain stuff to you, but there are no longer any people around to explain it. So there's just kind of this kind of weird sequence where Paul and his mother are sort of, you know, traveling through the desert, having escaped their city that's under siege from the Harkonnens. They're, you know, about to come upon this group of Fremen and Paul starts kind of hallucinating like all these voices that are, I, I think it says... In the credits, they're credited as, as like, you know, Atreides ancestors or something like that. One of them is Merry and Faithful for some reason. But they just kind of start talking about, um, and it's like they're referring back to a prophecy that the movie hasn't actually given us yet. But it's sort of a, like a, a Jon Snow thing in Game of Thrones where it's like, Paul has to die in order to become the Chris Atatarak. But then it's like, but actually to die, you need to kill somebody. Um, and it's not really like a death. You know, it, it's like it's kind of explaining something that was ever actually laid out before. But basically, he meets up with this tribe of, of Fremen, including Javier Bardem and, and Zendaya. One of them dislikes him and challenges him to a duel. They fight Paul, who's never taken a life before, kills him. Um, and this is somehow his both kind of his end with the tribe and his the first step on his sort of ascension to this bloodier destiny and that's kind of where the movie just leaves us like he kills a guy somebody rides by on a worm and scene uh come back next week but i guess i don't understand why the act of battling a fremen to the death would make him um you know would, would join him up with the fremen as he seems to be at the end i mean isn't he alienating them perhaps i don't understand the meaning of this ritual duel but are the fremen saying we want to sacrifice one of our members in order to you know test the will of this potential leader no i mean it's it's really just kind of the one person who takes a dislike to him this is not um kind of your standard initiation ritual but if somebody challenges you to a duel you can't refuse so paul is kind of stuck doing this thing um zendaya and javier bardem are looking on like oh too bad this guy we just met is about to get killed by one of us um but he manages to prevail yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but the ending is just is still just wildly confusing to me in terms of yes. you know the, the motivations and also why the outcome would be that you know he is now not exactly a member of the tribe, but is it seems to be accepted by the tribe. We haven't also mentioned that there's this effect of bright blue glowing eyes that the Fremen have that I think it's implied come from living on this planet with the the magical spice, right? So they have been gifted with all kinds of special vision that's completely separate from the spiritual training that Paul has been undergoing. You know, I'm just realizing too that we didn't discuss my very favorite part of this movie, which is pretty small and closer to the beginning, which is that one of the oldest and most, I guess, authoritative of the psychic space nuns, uh, the Bene Gesserit, is played by Charlotte Rampling, who is his aunt, right? Isn't she supposed to be Timothée's aunt? And who, um, who gives him that torture test earlier on in the movie. Yes, this is the big test of his worthiness for the Bene Gesserit. They have this little pain box that she sticks his hand in. Um, to see if he's worthy. And basically, if he can withstand the pain, you know, he gets to kind of, you know, move to the next square on the board. And if not, she's going to jab him with a little poison needle and kill him. I mean, both that, I have to say that the writing in this this movie, and maybe this is, again, because it is only half of a movie, just it, it, it seems to revolve around scenes like that and like the knife fight that are just dropped into the narrative to provide some kind of suspense and frisson and action in the middle of a, a pretty static story and maybe that's why even though this movie 
filled me with awe, etc. And I kind of want to see it again to see how it was put together. I also, quite honestly, fell asleep twice while watching it. I mean, between the deafening sound, um, the extremely long shot after shot of large ovoid spaceships landing on big expanses of sand... There, there's just something hypnotically dreamy in both the good and bad sense about Dune that um that I I'm a little bit curious actually why it has had the positive response that it has given that it really does require a lot of patience from the viewer. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean that's that's a good question, and I think I mean certainly not every you know release in the last couple of months has uh, done that well. So I, I you probably can't say that people are just itching to get back to movie theaters regardless, but I think they did successfully. Um, communicate the the idea that this is something that if you're going to see it, you should see it that way. And, you know, Denis Villeneuve took a ton of crap on the internet for saying um, back in August that it, he thought it was kind of ridiculous to movie to watch it on the small screen. And that would be like driving a speedboat in a bathtub. Um, you know, it seems like that message resonated with, with enough people that they got the sense that if they were going to see it at all, they should see it big. And I would stop short of saying that you have to see it um, in a theater or anywhere else. But if you feel like you're going to and if you that is a safe thing for you to do based on who you are, who you live with, um, what part of the country you're in, et cetera, um, you know, I would recommend doing that if it makes sense for you. Yeah, I agree. There haven't been many movies since um, since all of this pandemic business started that I would I would say are worth waiting until you can see them in the theater under whatever circumstances. But I would say that this is one of them because I can only imagine that on the small screen you know, the, those effects would start to seem really drawn out, right? I mean, you want to be dwarfed by this movie. It's that kind of movie. It sets out to dwarf you. So you want to be watching it on the screen that's at least bigger than your own body, if possible. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it in the theater. I think I probably would have been, like, checking my phone after 10 minutes at home. Um, and it really it really helps to be that in that environment, at least for me. Um, if you have greater willpower than I do, maybe that's less necessary. And I have to say that in spite of my relative indifference to the story of this movie, the craft of it is fascinating enough and just the sandworms are are fun enough to look at that I would happily go back to the theater to see a sequel, even though I might come out of that as well saying I fell asleep twice. It's just fascinating to see what a director like Denis Villeneuve, who whatever you think of him is certainly um, artful and uh, original in his vision, um, does with this very familiar property. And since we've gotten sequels, I mean, even to movies that have done far less well and been, been far less well-received, I find it hard to imagine that there is not going to be a Dune 2 in the works and possibly even further Dunes uh, for some of the books that Frank Herbert wrote. And uh, when there is, I hope you will come back and once again explain to me what the hell's going on in them. I will, I will do my very best, Dana. All right, well, that does it for this Slate Spoiler Special. I hope it made you want to go and see Dune, or maybe you know that you want to run away and not see it. At any rate, thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe, and of course, if you like this podcast, you can rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Cleo Levin. For Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. 